Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets with Remy Atino. Today's Friday, March 12th. And last week, we enjoyed having Mike Bartolotta on the show, so we invited him back for a second week in a row. Thanks for joining us again, Mike. Tino, let's start it off talking about the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that was passed this week. Yeah, the stimulus bill is interesting. You know, I trying to keep my opinions aside from this one, and I'll just say that I, I, I find it, I don't know if it's necessarily needed at this point. Um, I mean, again, from a data perspective, uh, and and I don't mean to be broadly generalizing there too. I think some industries certainly need some some assistance right now. I'm, restaurants are getting some benefits. I'm sure airlines will get a little bit of love and and whatnot. But uh, if you look at the if you look at where we are and, and kind of where we are with COVID, it, you know, a lot of the stimulus does seem to be uh, unrelated to COVID. I mean, and, and also if you look again, look at the data. I found some interesting statistics from our friends over at First Trust. Uh, if you think about the the peak of COVID cases being called July, or excuse me, January twenty first of this year, since then nationwide, cases are down seventy seven percent, deaths forty nine percent, hospitalizations down seventy six point five percent, nursing home deaths down ninety, or excuse me, nursing home cases rather down ninety six percent. You know, in many ways, this appears to be in the rearview mirror, and the economy is opening up. We're starting to see Texas, uh, I think it's Mississippi, a couple other states are going to full open. You know, the more opening we're, openings we're seeing, I think the economy can kind of handle this on its own at this point, with, again, with, with few exceptions. But yeah, it's coming, and there's a lot of money. It's $1.9 trillion, and I think it's safe to say that the market has started to try to figure out how to digest all of that new debt coming in. And you look at the bond market, what's been happening the last two or three weeks, you know, you've got a, a pretty sizable amount of debt that they're going to have to absorb, and we're starting to see some of the uh, some of the some of the effects of that already. So the numbers tell us one thing, and the media tells us something else. You know, I, I guess you have to make up your own mind, but but I know what side of the fence I'm on. Well, look, you, they don't. I mean, the media doesn't want this story to go away. I mean, this is probably the biggest story in the media in the last I don't know a couple decades, and you know they're gonna they're gonna keep this thing going for as long as they can. And also remember, there's a lot of people that got famous overnight over this thing. And, you know, a lot of, not just Fauci, but there's some other people that go on TV a lot or they, they're now closely followed. And, you know, look, they don't want that fame to go away. The incentives are in place to keep the story going for a really long time. Yeah, I don't know how many opportunities there are for an immunologist to get famous these days, but uh, I'm guessing they're pretty slim. Yeah, I mean, maybe become a serial killer. That's the only way I could think of. I mean, these people probably don't really talk to people outside of labs all that often. So yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, the, the, the number of COVID reinfection cases, there's a website that actually tracks this worldwide. As of maybe three or four weeks ago, the number of COVID reinfection cases was either below or just above 50 out of a couple, it was 100 million or whatever cases there have been, 50 reinfections. So statistically speaking, that's also irrelevant. So 1.9 trillion being dumped into the economy. Uh, what's your opinion on the effect of that over, let's say, the next one year, five years, and ten years? Yeah, the irony of the bill is that a lot of it's not even going to get spent this year. Right, the majority is going to be kind of back end loaded over the next couple of years. So um, whether you agree with it or not, it, it's irrelevant. It's coming. It's going to happen. And you, you think about the economy, and you know it's already healing itself to a degree. This is going to inject even more economic activity. Now, there's going to be some wasteful spending, but there's also going to be a lot of increased economic activity. And you add on to the fact that so many people are sitting at home aching to go do something with all this money in their bank account. And I do think it's going to certainly help the economy. But 
you know, there's good and bad with that. I think there's a high probability of inflation. And if that does kick in, then it's going to kind of change the calculus in terms of how we position going forward, particularly in equities. So Tino, does this explain, you know, some of the volatility that we've seen over the past few weeks or what? It, it, again, we're not, we're not through the finish line on the stimulus bill, but if you think about, uh, you know, we, two, three weeks ago, we had a debt auction, which what that means is that the government actually works with a certain number of uh, primary dealers where they sell their government debt to the big, big banks like Citibank and, you know, Bank of America, places like that. The demand for that debt uh, was called tepid, maybe not as strong as they had expected, and that really spooked the bond market because if you think about it, that was just a normal debt offering. Well, 2021 normal, all right. But uh, when you think about, okay, well, the bond market wasn't as receptive and now we're gonna dump 1.9 trillion in additional spending, most of that through new debt, I think it spooked the bond market quite a bit into thinking that maybe the uh, Fed may end up raising interest rates sooner than expected because of inflation coming up uh, sooner than expected. So. You saw a rotation. What we've seen in the rotation has been sell what worked in 2020. Technology stocks is probably the, the poster child for what's been happening right now. So tech stocks are getting sold hard and you're seeing a rotation into the parts of the economy that didn't do so well last year because of economic hardships, financials, energy sector, uh, you know, consumer discretionary. Those types of sectors have taken off over the past couple months because of this rotation. But to me, that's a catch-up trade, what we call a junk rally, where kind of junkier companies catch up to what we've seen in other sectors. Those rallies tend to be very short-lived. And I do think at some point, people are going to look at, at, at technology and these other sectors that are sold out and say, hey, wait a minute, that's actually where, where the real growth is going forward. Yeah, that was actually my next comment. So, I mean, I, I would think for the, the savvy investor, you'd be jumping into sectors that are selling off right now. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's a great way of looking at it. You know, you sit there and say, okay, what has fundamentally changed in the long-term direction of the tech sector? I mean, you think about software, for example. This is, a, this is a sector that, for all intents and purposes, impacts every other sector on the planet right now. And it, it's hard to sit there and say that the demand for innovation and technology going forward is somehow going to get impaired. So yeah, it, for, from a long-term perspective, it makes a lot of sense. And I'll even add to that is that you know, it's, it's one thing to say, well, you know, you should have been able to see this rotation happen and jump into these junk rallies, earn the money, and then jump back into tech. But then, you know, you think about the timing component to that. You got to be able to see these things, and, and they're never obvious until in hindsight. So, you know, for, as a long-term investor, we sit there and say, okay, these air pockets are going to come along the way as we, as we continue to, you know, grow our economy. Uh, but, you know, there are pockets, they're temporary and they tend to correct themselves and rectify you know, relatively quickly. And we can be patient and, and, and ignore them along the way. And Remy, your comment sort of assumes people act, you know, logically. And, you know, we mentioned that the podcast last week, I'm on the advisory side of the business, right? So I, I hear the phone calls. And right now, what are we getting? We're getting people calling and saying, it looks like, you know, tech is, tech is dropping, get me out. You know, which is just the opposite of what you said, right? It's an opportunity they should buy in. Tech's not going to go away. Right. It's it's a buying opportunity. But but that's not what human nature is. Human nature is, oh, my God, the, 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 you know, the sky is falling. Get me out. Yeah. And I think also to echo back what we talked about last week, you know, you, you need to take the emotion out of investing. Yeah. And that's hard. Which is the hardest thing to do. Even I, I know professional investors that make crazy money and they get emotional. It's 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 again, think about it. It's, it's behavioral finance. It, it's this idea that something is scary and it's like anything else. You walk down an alley and there's, I don't know, I'm going to make this up. There's a tiger or something like that. 
that you, you fear, you're going to do something to protect yourself. It's the exact same uh, instinct just when it comes to your money. Well, when you see something, you know, you see the market declining, you know, people, people think they have to get it at exactly the right time, right? It's like, you know, okay, yeah, I'll buy in when it gets to the bottom. But who the hell knows what the bottom is? You know, have no idea where the bottom is. Or, or so it's like, okay, well, it's going to keep going down. Get me out now. And then they don't know when to get back in. I just bumped into a, a friend of mine. I was walking a dog and I just bumped into a friend of mine who, who said to me, this is a guy, it's a do-it-yourself do it guy. He belongs to like a, uh, an investment club. And uh, he said, you know, I'm going to pick your brain about the market for some free advice. I said, uh, you know, you can try. And, and he said, you know, when should I get back in? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, we get out of the market in September of 2020 because, you know, we thought it was a bubble and, you know, we're waiting for the right time to get back in. Uh, I said, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think you missed it. I mean, I don't even know what to tell the guy. I, I wouldn't either. And I look at this stuff every day. Look, I mean, timing markets, the problem with timing markets like that is you got to get lucky or right twice. And that's really hard to do. Getting out, which is the easier of the two. Uh, and then yeah, yeah, you got to get back in. And the problem with getting out, if you time the top or if anywhere close, the problem is you're right one time. And then that's going to make you think every single time the market goes down, you're going to think, well, it's going to go further. It's going to go further. It's going to go further. But markets don't go down all that often. So then it's going to start climbing back up and you're going to miss your entry point, And then you're going to wait for it to fall back. I've seen this happen thousands of times it's just it's consistently it's impossible to time that well i always analogize it to, to golf right i'm a horrible golfer but every now and then i hit a great shot right i don't golf that much but when i do you know uh, at 18 holes i'm gonna hit a shot or two and when i'm done playing those are the ones that i remember and i fool myself into thinking that i'm actually pretty halfway decent golf but i'm not i'm a terrible golfer and i think that's what happens right people you know people play around with their money and they have a success here or there because they get lucky and then that's all they really remember yeah, that's that's exactly what happens. Human nature. Human nature. Look, I mean, I, again, I do yeah, it too. Remember the good stuff, forget the bad stuff. Yeah. I don't think that's specific to finance or golf for that matter. I think it's with just about everything. Yeah, you're probably right. So last week we touched on annuities and we had a couple of comments from some of our listeners that, you know, not everybody is is educated on, on what annuities are um, or has had an experience with them. So that maybe we could talk about those a little bit more. Uh, so, Mike, I, I know this is a, uh, you know, a very broad topic, but do you want to try and give us uh, some sort of like an annuity 101? That's a, you know, that can be multiple podcasts it's a topic. All, by, all by itself, right? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I, I think if you ask 10 different people, you know, when you say annuity, what do you think of? You're going to get 10 different answers. And and probably none of them is exactly right. Probably they all have probably elements of truth of them, but, but none of them is exactly right. The problem is annuities can be a lot, a lot, a lot of different things. Um, I think annuity in its, in its purest form, it's supposedly annuities have been around since like, you know, Roman gladiators and stuff. I don't know if it's true or not. I thought I read it was during like the Civil War. Well, I think civil. I think the 1800s was the first time that a uh, an insurance company actually issued an annuity. But I think the concept theoretically has been around for like the couple thousand years. You know, it comes from tontines and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but an annuity, in its simplest form, is really an exchange of a lump sum of cash for a stream of payments. So, you know, to put it into practical terms. Um, you know, let's say I give an insurance company a hundred thousand dollars, 
And in exchange for that $100,000, they pay me, let's say $500 a month for as long as I live. Uh, and obviously the benefit to me is that I'm getting a stream of income that I cannot outlive. I don't have to worry about you know, how that money is invested or how much I can take out each month and worrying that I'm gonna outlive that, that original lump sum of cash. The downside to me is that if I live for three months and you know now I've collected fifteen hundred dollars of my hundred thousand and die, the insurance company keeps you know keeps the difference. That's a very very simple explanation of what annuity is, and that's what the original annuity was designed to do, and that still exists. It, it's obviously become much more sophisticated. Um, that would also fall into the category of an immediate annuity. An immediate annuity uh, turns that money into into income within one year of a deposit. So if I take that same example, and now I decide, well, I like this idea of taking this $100,000 and turning it into a stream of income, but you know, I don't like the idea that if I don't get my $100,000 back that the insurance company keeps it. Well, now I can add some guarantees onto that. I can say, well, I wanna make sure that someone gets the balance of that money if I die. So I can add a, a period certain, which means they're gonna pay that for a guaranteed number of months, whether I live or die but they'll continue to pay me for as long as I live. Or I can add uh, something called a refund option or cash refund option, which means now they're gonna pay me for as long as I live. But if I die and I've only collected $85,000, someone's gonna get a lump sum of 15,000 to get back the original 100,000. There's all kinds of other options you can add on to that. You know, if I'm married, I can, you know, I can get a payout for as long as, uh, as, long as I live or, or my wife lives. I can get a, an option where I get a, a cost of living increase every year. There's all, all kinds of stuff and the pricing uh, or the amount of those payouts back to me are all dependent on which, which of those option, options that I choose. But that's a, just, again, that's a super simple explanation of an annuity. So what you described is called an immediate annuity. And I think that when most people hear the word annuity, you know, that is what they think of, uh, you know, but in my nine years of, of marketing annuity products, you know, I would say that the vast majority are, are not buying immediate annuities. They're buying deferred annuities. Yeah, almost no one buys immediate annuities. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that more than five or 10% of all annuities sold are, are, are immediate annuities. Yeah, it'd be interesting to take a look at the, the stats on that, but I think you're probably right. Yeah, so I think it makes sense to maybe talk about deferred annuities a little bit since, uh, you know, that is what most people are buying, even though they, they may not realize it or they may not know the term anyhow. So a, de a deferred annuity is really nothing more than that same thing that I, that I just described, except now I want to defer my payout. So for, for at least one year. Um, so now I want to put in a hundred thousand dollars and I don't know when I want that payout to start. So I'm going to give it to an insurance company and annuities are always issued by insurance companies. Uh, I'm going to give it to an insurance company. Now that insurance company is going to credit me some rate of interest and it might be a rate of interest that's based on what the investments are in their general account. It might be some form of underlying mutual fund type investment. It might be indexed to something. And those are all, again, various types of deferred annuities, but they're going to continue to give me some sort of accredited interest uh, each year before I turn that into a stream of income. When I turn that into a stream of income, it's called annuitizing. 
and I may never annuitize it. You know, I may just put a, a chunk of money in and I may leave it there for six or seven or eight or 10 years. And if I decide that, you know, I don't need that stream of income, I may never turn that into annuity. I may just, I may die with it and leave it to my heirs. Is there any benefit, uh, like in terms of wealth transfer for an annuity? So the, the benefits of an annuity, um, there's there's a lot of benefits actually. Number one is the, is the safety of, of income, right? Once you start pulling the income out. Number two is if the annuity is non-qualified, in other words, if you buy it with after-tax dollars, the interest credited is tax deferred until you actually start to take the money out. So, and there's no limit on that. It's not like an IRA where, you know, if you earn a certain amount, you can only put so much in and so forth. You can put as much as you want in if it's not qualified. Uh, you don't get a deduction for it, but all the interest you earn is tax deferred. The downside of an annuity is that it is a really pretty poor trans- transfer vehicle. It's not a good vehicle to own if you want to you know, move wealth to the next generation. Because what happens is that whoever inherits that is now going to inherit the tax liability for all of that growth that was not taxed in your lifetime. And all that growth is gonna be taxed as ordinary income in their tax bracket. So we actually have a listener who was interested in the difference between life insurance and annuities. And you know maybe this is a good segue into that topic. Yeah, and I think people get confused uh, between the two because annuities are always issued by life insurance companies. Uh, the basic difference is that an annuity doesn't have any sort of an enhanced death benefit. Okay, if, if I die, if I put $100,000 in annuity and it's it's grown to, you know, $120,000 through the accredited interest, you know, when I die, that $120,000 is, is going to go to my heirs, um, but no additional death benefit. As opposed to life insurance, you know, where I pay a premium or I put in a lump sum of cash, maybe I put $100,000 on a life insurance product. And when I die, it's, you know, the death benefit is $300,000 or $400,000. Um so they serve different purposes, but they're both issued by life insurance companies, I think, hence the confusion. Yeah, I used to tell people that life insurance was to protect you from dying too soon, whereas annuities were protective from living too long. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I used to not quite understand why people did annuities, because the concept didn't make much sense initially. You've got a lump sum of money, why would I give it to somebody for them to give it back to me? But, you know, it's interesting. I did a case study a couple of years ago, uh, Mike, I'm, I'm sure you probably know about this, but... Basically, you know, you think about these large car companies like Ford and GM. I mean, these are basically pension companies that sell cars. I mean, their pensions are absolutely enormous. And from a, from a uh, kind of a CFO perspective, managing these pensions is a nightmare because you, they don't want to be responsible for paying people's benefits going forward with the markets the way they are and whatnot. There's a lot of uncertainty and fluctuation. So a lot of these, um, these CFOs have been annuitizing their pensions. So they, they take a chunk of their, their, their pension and they basically hand it to an insurance company and say, you deal with this. Yeah, that's an entire, and, that's an entire business, right? Um, yeah. Defined benefit plans used to be very popular, right? A defined benefit plan is, you know, I work for a company for, for a bunch of years and I'm gonna get so much per month in my retirement for every year that I work for the company, right? They're defining what my benefit is and the companies are required to fund those, those plans. Um, those fa- those plans have fallen out of favor because they're very very expensive. But the ones that are that are in force still, um, the companies are required to fund them. And what they do, very very frequently, I would say almost all the time, is they they move that risk off to an to an insurance company through the use of an annuity. Um, again, when you know back when I was in the annuity distribution business, you know we'd get calls 
a, a couple of months probably from someone saying, you know, we've got a, a terminated defined benefit plan. Um, you know, we're looking for we're looking for a company, and we'd you know we'd quote it out. We get a uh, we'd get a census of all the employees and what the benefits were due, and we'd go to an insurance company, and they would say, you know, in order for us to pay all of these benefits to these people at these you know predefined times, we need X dollars, and that's what exactly what would happen. The 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 company that that sponsored the the defined benefit plan would then just write a check for whatever it is. Usually, it was several million, tens of millions of dollars sometimes. Um, to, to move that risk over to the insurance company in the form of a, of a group annuity. Yeah, I mean, to me, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, after I've kind of dug into it a little bit more, I mean, if these companies are annuitizing some of their liabilities, it makes sense for an individual. I mean, if you don't know how long you're going to live, if you don't know, really know how to grow your money to keep that income coming in, pass it off to somebody who can give you the guarantee. It makes a lot of sense from a financial planning perspective. Listen, it's a great idea for for like your your base needs, right? It's It's not going to... You know, part of the downside is it's not going to give you a lot of growth. You know, once you once you annuitize something, you know, you know what your payment's going to be. Even if you put a, a cost of living adjustment on it, you usually have to specify what that is. I want a 3% per year cost of living adjustment. You know, if inflation goes crazy, you know, that payment may not keep up with, with inflation. So, you know, something to cover your base expenses in retirement that you know is there, you know you're going to have for as long as you live, you know is reliable. You know that that buys a lot of peace of mind for people, and it's a it's a very legitimate way to handle those kinds of expenses in retirement. So you cover your expenses with, through an annuity or some percentage of your expenses, and then the call it the excess from that from, again from a financial planning perspective, that's your growth capital. Right? That's that's what you invest in, and then that because which actually works out well for my world because the hardest absolutely. The most difficult thing to do right now uh, in, in a financial markets perspective is to generate income from stocks, bonds, and cash. Right. And, it, and it gives people peace, some peace of mind, and it allows them to, to get a little more aggressive you know, in their investment style. Because they're not so worried about, you know, if I if there's a correction, all of a sudden, you know, I lose 20 percent of my money. You know, now what? You know, I can't stop taking my money out until, you know, until the market, you know, moves back in the other direction. So it, it allows them a little bit of peace of mind to get a little more aggressive on the on the other parts of their of their financial plan. So you use annuity for the cash flow for the income and then the rest allows you, as you said, to go a little bit, take on a little bit more risk, which in an environment where uh, st- you know stocks and I'm sorry, cash and uh, cash and bonds aren't really quite cutting it. It allows you probably to get a little bit more comfortable with your equity allocation. Sit there, be patient, and then you know when we're seeing turbulence like we're seeing right now in some of these sectors, it allows you to kind of be a little bit more patient and and uh, hopefully, like to your point, sleep better at night. That's good financial planning. Yeah, and listen, and and, and that's really just sort of the tip of the iceberg on the annuity, right? We're really only talking about the income. Uh, part of it, but there's there are an awful lot of people that put put money into annuities for the growth, right? W- with the intent that they're never necessarily going to turn the income on; they want it for the growth, and that's where you know variable annuities come in that you know will invest in the market or index annuities that that where the credited rate is attached to some index, and and there's all kinds of co- kinds of controversy about those things. And I mentioned this last week. You know, you have uh, people out there that that advertise how much they dislike annuities and, and what they point to the fact that that the annuity pays the uh, the advisor, the agent, a commission, uh, as though that makes the thing evil. Uh, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of logical sense when you think about it. Um, you know, uh, 
when I buy a car, the guy that sells me the car is going to get a commission. Am I never going to buy a car because someone's going to pay a commission? I mean, if the car does what it's supposed to do and it, you know, it's, it's got some utility to me, it makes sense for me to do it. If it's good for me, I'm going to do it. You know, if an annuity is good for you, you should do it whether or not it pays somebody a commission. It, it's really kind of irrelevant. I mean, commissions under everything. I mean, even when you buy stocks, I mean, even with zero, quote unquote, zero commissions at Schwab, I mean, there's, there's that bid-ask spread, that market maker's getting paid something to, to facilitate the trade. So that's just, yeah, any financial asset you buy, there's going to be some type of commission or, or, or sales charge. Uh, you, you, can, you can take the word financial asset out of there. Anything you buy, somebody's getting <laughs> yeah, paid on, Yeah, good right? point. I mean, people aren't working yeah. for free. And, and I would be real suspect in dealing with anybody who says that quote unquote all of any product are just inherently bad somebody who says all annuities are bad or all mutual funds are bad or all in mm-hmm. life insurance is bad or whatever it is uh, how, how can you trust that person because that that's you know everybody's got a different situation and, and then every product was designed to help somebody in some way right so so the, the products are good for somebody they may not be good for you maybe they are good for you who knows but but to just just to write off an entire product set is, is irresponsible, in my opinion. Anytime I'm dealing with somebody, whether it's a salesman or advisor or whatever, as soon as they use the word always or never. You just out. I, I go the other way. Yeah, I'm done. Do you know you Star Wars geek? I know you're a geek in general, but. I absolutely, <laughs> believe it or not, I don't get into Star Wars at all. No, and not even and, you're, and you're busted our chops on the caddy show. Yeah, I've seen it though. There's a difference. I've actually seen Star Wars. <laughs> well, the first three. The, okay. Since <laughs> whatever that that new series came out in like '99 or 2000, it, it became totally unwatchable. But yeah, the rest of them are pointless yeah. and irrelevant. Well, for anyone else who's been living in the cave for the past 30 years, the uh, the evil Jedi's they're called Siths, and uh, you know Master Yoda has a great quote where he says that, that only, only the Sith deal in absolutes. And that's kind of like what we're talking about here, I think. I think, it's, I think it's kind of funny that you called Tino a geek, but you're the one that came up with that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't say I wasn't a geek. <laughs> so to end the show this week, I want to talk about an article I just read about somebody who purchased an original Banksy, turned it into an NFT, and then burned the original. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't get that at all. That is a... A, a tragedy in our times, in my opinion. I don't yeah, even know who crazy. Banksy is. Oh my God. Come I can't on, even have this podcast How with can you. You, yeah. you don't know I mean, who Banksy? That's like saying, no. uh, <laughs> that's like saying, like, I don't know who Andy Warhol is. That's worse than saying you never saw Caddyshack. I'll tell you that. No doubt. I read an extensive report on this whole burning this Banksy thing yesterday. I think it was yesterday. And it was very thoughtful in terms of why you'd break it or burn it and, you know, some of the implications. And then the, most of the articles just basically make fun of the people for burning it. But the entire time, I'm like, who, who, what is this guy? Who is this guy? Is he, is, I guess he's an artist then, I assume. He, he's, he's the most f- famous. Originally, he was a graffiti artist in New York, I believe, right, Remy? Um, I know he did a lot of work in New York, but I don't know that he was necessarily started in New York. Maybe. I think he did a lot of stuff in Paris. He's been around, but every major city. Yeah. But there's a movie, um, this, uh, what's the name of the movie that they made about him in through the gift shop or through the gift shop or something like that. Have you seen it? It's, it's pretty interesting actually. Um, but yeah, no, he's, he's about as famous as any contemporary artist can be for quite a long time. Uh, you would see his work pop up 
in various major cities all all over the world, but nobody knew who he was. He was, he did everything in secret. And for years, years and years, nobody knew who he was. Um, and his work is very identifiable. I mean, when, when something pops up, you know, it's a Banksy right out of the gate and it's always something that's a little bit controversial. It's always, um, you know, either it always makes a statement of some sort, a political statement of some sort. And, um, you know, these things were popping up all over the world for years and years and, and nobody knew who it was. You never knew where it was going to show up. And they became, you know, very iconic of the time, I would say. He's, he's from uh, England originally. Okay, that's, which I, I, didn't I was going to say, I thought he was yeah, from London, is, but. Yeah, yeah, he's from London originally. Um, and uh, the, the name of the movie is Exit Through the Gift Shop, which is actually a cool movie. Even if you don't you have no interest in Banksy, it was, it was a super interesting documentary. Anyway, back to the, the, the topic. Right. So, so since we were talking about NFTs last week, what a, you know, what a great follow-up to, to, to what they are and, and how they can be used, right? Um, I believe it was actually an investment firm that, that purchased one for um, about 100 grand and took a video. So I guess took, you know, took some, some pictures of the, of the art itself and then recorded a video burning the Banksy and tied that video to an NFT and then sold that video um, at auction. And it closed, I want to say last week at uh, 380 something thousand, 385,000 or something like that. So, I mean, they almost quadrupled their money. So, I mean, if, you know, if if we're talking about a pure investment standpoint, I guess it was a great investment, but to destroy that iconic piece of of history, at least art history is. I mean, how much do you hate that these guys made money? In fact, right. I mean, it's, it it incensed people to do like the worst possible thing. No doubt. So I, I actually didn't know that they had that they had closed on that auction, and I was uh, talking about it this morning, and I was I was saying how I was hoping that that NFT sold for absolutely zero dollars, and they lost a hundred grand. But I guess the joke's on me. I don't know. Maybe we should start a fund and buy some you know crazy piece of famous art. And it's see what it's we can just do disrespectful. It. Yeah, so, and and I I guess I can. I, um, I, you know, I don't want to say necessarily relate to it, but I guess I'm a little bit closer to it since my wife is an artist and I, I thought she was just going to vomit when she read that article. Listen, what are she the, was, what are the, she was so distressed about it. What are the chances that they, they burned a fake and they have the original somewhere and they got all that money now and the original. Probably a very good chance, but we won't know for many years. Right. Right. I mean, that's the first thing I thought of when I saw the picture of these guys burning, are they really burning this thing or is this just a big scam? It's a great scam. How can you prove it? You can't. Right, you can't. It's torched. Theoretically. Right. I mean, that sounds like a great business we should go into. <laughs> I know, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should start that rumor that that's what they did and discourage people from, from doing I like it in the future. That. I like that. It started right here on this podcast. If you have any questions or comments about anything we talked about today, or perhaps you just have a suggestion of a topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, feel free to shoot us an email at questions at onmarkets.com. We'd love to hear from you and we'll do our best to talk about it on the show. We appreciate you listening.
This podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management LLC and Darwin Advisors LLC. Darwin Asset Management LLC and Darwin Advisors LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin, does not make any representations or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the renderings of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.